and welcome to Embracing Diabetes, a podcast that explores the many different ways people are thriving with diabetes in the world, from making music and art to helping us better understand and manage our emotions. On this episode, my co-host, Dr. Liz Stevens, speaks to Dr. Earl Hirsch, endocrinologist, diabetes researcher, author of numerous articles and books on diabetes, and a person with type 1 diabetes himself for more than 60 years. Currently, he is a professor of medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine and sees patients, the majority with type 1 diabetes, at the University of Washington Endocrine and Diabetes Care Center. Liz has known Earl for over 20 years, and during that time, he has been a consistent source of mentorship in her career, a resource for information and perspective in all things diabetes, an inspiring advocate around the cost of managing diabetes. They had a great conversation about his history with diabetes, how it has influenced his career choice, and his view of the challenges facing our community and also, of course, what he is hopeful for. We hope you enjoy their conversation. So Earl, thank you so much for making time to talk with us on Embracing Diabetes. Um, I have uh, some questions that I was hoping I could ask you for the time that we have together. And we always start our podcast by asking um, people who live with diabetes about what stands out in your memory around the time of diagnosis or your experience, if you feel comfortable sharing. We've just heard some amazing stories from people and a lot of similarities. Well, it was not a recent memory. And to be exact, it was 59 years ago. Oh, my goodness. 1964. My sister was four. My brother was two. Um, and. I remember that first night, I assume I was in DKA, but I don't know. This is what I remember. I remember going to the pediatrician's office with my mother. My mother, of course, had no clue. There was no type one in our family. I was six years old. The pediatrician knew right away what I had. And he wanted me to go right away down to St. Louis Children's Hospital. And I was hungry and I was thirsty. And what I remember was there's this very famous root beer place. It's still there in St. Louis, although it's moved. My mother took me for root beer and hot dog. Regular root beer, of course. She she had no idea. I don't remember. I remember that first night. I remember IVs. I remember there was an aunt. One of my father's sisters was there. I don't remember anything else since this was 59 years ago. But what I remember was my brother and sister were also tested. And I remember they were in this giant crib. I don't remember anything else, except they were in the hospital for a day or two also. And of course, the ironic part about that was 13 later, as my brother did develop type 1 diabetes. And then the only other thing I really remember was the first night home from the hospital, and my parents were trying so hard. They were trying so hard. And they were reading the piece of paper from the dietitian. And it was my bedtime snack. 
and they were reading it. And I remember this so well. They thought it said 10 graham crackers, 10 graham crackers. And what it actually said was 10 grams of graham crackers. And they didn't understand grams. They didn't know. And so that's, that, that's what I remember. Yeah, it's remarkable how many consistent memories we hear from people about, you know, being so thirsty and, and root beer or juice or whatever it was and just how that cycle probably just played out in all sorts of havoc. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, a lot of people come and do this without knowing anyone with type 1 diabetes and family members who, you know, just had to struggle through it. It's really remarkable how well we all did. Um, and then one of the other questions I had for you that it just I get a lot because, you know, I'm pretty open about having diabetes as well is, and it always makes me laugh a little bit, is, you know, did having diabetes influence your interest in becoming an endocrinologist and practicing endocrinology? So I was curious about your experience that way. I mean, it had a big influence for me as I was working, moving through internal medicine. It just felt like a, a natural fit. But did you have that same kind of calling? When I started medical school, my plan was to be a general pediatrician. That's what I wanted to do. But as I moved through medical school and my first rotation was pediatrics and it was horrible because in those days, children with acute leukemia didn't survive. And I had three leukemic children. I think they were all ALL and all three of them died. And that really scarred me a lot. And, and then I went to surgery. I said, I don't think I could physically deal with this. What I loved, absolutely loved, was OB. And it was high-risk OB, and I had so much fun. And then, as it turned out, my very last rotation was internal medicine in my third year. And I was really struggling because I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, but I had such a bad experience. In internal medicine, I was at the VA hospital. And I had so much fun. And I said, this is what I want to do. This is so much fun. But then what happened was the experts in diabetes, I realized were not really experts. And I also realized that on the OB service that the people who were dealing with diabetes and pregnancy, they weren't experts either. And I realized I knew more about diabetes just because I had it than the experts did. And that's when I realized this is probably what I should do. So it felt like, it's interesting. I had some, a similar experience. I remember sitting in the call room, you know, one night, I think it was, it was at OHSU and um, the residents were talking just pretty disparagingly about people with diabetes and how they, you know, they got into this situation because of the choices they made and those diabetics and blah, blah, blah. And remember feeling like, oh, this is awful. Like they have no idea. And just feeling really called to, to do, uh, do it differently. So, and then it was just super fun. I mean, it's just it's an interesting specialty. I just wish more people were going into it for sure. I'll say one other thing. Diabetes as a physician, I mean, People who are listening to this podcast know how hard it is as a patient. As a physician, it's also very hard and it's intense because there's the medical stuff. There's now the technology, the medications, all the emotional, psychosocial stuff. It is hard, which is one of the reasons why today most endocrinologists want to do everything and many 
don't want to do any diabetes because it is so um, emotionally and time intensive. And the reality is when I did internal medicine and then I did an endocrine elective, I love general endocrinology. I absolutely loved it. It was like a chess game uh, trying to figure out, you know, the who done it with the primary and secondary defects of the feedback loops. Mm -hmm. And I love general endocrinology. And in fact, fast forward many years in my fellowship, I loved it. But even coming to the University of Washington, I had to really think about when I came here, they didn't want me to do outpatient endocrinology. I would do inpatient, which as the years have gone on, has been less of a focus. For us, it's a big focus because of pituitary disease, but I was not allowed to do any outpatient endocrinology. And the reality is, it is so much fun to do. Whereas I would say, I want to make sure people understand I love diabetes. I love my patients. I, I've been doing this here for 33 years, but endocrinology actually, it's, it's a thinking person's game. And, um, it is, it really was so much fun. And today it still is, even though I don't do inpatient or outpatient anymore for different reasons. Um, I still go to the conferences because I, I, I think it's so much fun. Yeah, it is. It's such an interesting and, and all the developments and the pathways, feedback loops are always really cool. Another thing that you, you've just been a huge advocate in our community around diabetes, doing a lot of educating, you know, speaking to groups, trying to really help, um, you know, push causes forward. Can you speak to like a particularly memorable or meaningful experience or anything that you've done recently that's been helps to inspire because there's a lot of new exciting things that are going on, but there's a lot that's still really challenging in the diabetes world. And I'm just curious if if you had anything that kind of stood out in your recent memory. Well, this actually starts from a colleague of yours in Portland. I gave a talk at the Keystone Diabetes Conference, which you know very well, in the yep. summer of 2014. And I gave a talk of the horrible inequities and problems of insulin access and insulin cost in the United States. And person in the audience was Dr. Matt Riddle, a faculty member at OHSU. And he happened to be on the planning committee the next year for the ADA scientific sessions. And he knew if I gave that talk in front of 2,000 people at ADA, even an updated talk, it would get uh, quite an audience. And he was absolutely right. I, Dr. Riddle always is. And it was on the, the way ADA works is the first session is on a Friday afternoon and it goes until a Tuesday morning. And I was in that Friday afternoon and it was in Boston. And what I remember for the rest of that meeting, strangers coming up to me and thanking me for being brave going up against the pharmaceutical industry. And the reality was, I didn't think about being brave. I wasn't brave. I was upset. And that's what I told people. And I sort of became a person that the ADA and the endocrine society could come to because of the politics of insulin and these organizations. They, sh they sort of had their hands tied about what they could say. But when the New York Times or USA Today called and they wanted a comment, they would refer them to me. 
So I got a national stage very quickly with that. And it came to the point that I've testified to Congress twice about this topic. And I'm not sure my input has had any impact when we look at what happened last summer, where yes, we now have insulin pricing caps for Medicare patients, but not for commercial payers, because this is all as political as it is about medicine and, um, you know, ethical. Um, we have to put ethics and politics now in the same sentence because there are politicians who, quite frankly, are being paid off. So that's, that's one issue. And then the final part of this story is I said something at an international symposium at last year's ADA meeting. It was a symposium looking at insulin access in different parts of the world. And I was asked to speak about insulin access in the United States. And I, I said something that actually I sort of wear with the badge of honor, but it actually got me a death threat. And as one colleague said to me, I don't know too many endocrinologists who have had death threats. Oh my but goodness. That's, but that's where I am. Wow. Yep. Gosh, that speaks to just the, boy, it's a hot topic, I guess, huh? You wouldn't think, but. What I did, what I said was, and, and it's a true statement, I, I showed the map of the United States. Now, remember, a lot of the people in the audience were not from the U.S. And I explained about Medicaid expansion. And part of the Affordable Care Act is Medicaid expansion. And there were 12 states that did not have Medicaid expansion. And those 12 states are the states where we have the most insulin rationing and ketoacidosis. And we all know where those states are. They're in the southeast part of the U.S., Texas and Alabama and Mississippi. There's no Medicaid expansion. So if you have type 1 diabetes in those states, you can't afford your insulin. And I, was do, I said a quote from this big think tank that this is really the main problem in the United States with insulin access was not an editorial, it was a fact. But then I said something that upset a lady because my comment went on Twitter. It then trended, it went viral. And what I said is in these states, it may, it may actually be easier to purchase a gun than a vial of insulin, which actually is true. Oh my goodness. And that, that got me the death threat. I was asked to with, I was asked to retract my comment or she would come after me and my family. Oh, my goodness. True story. Oh, boy. I'm so sorry that happened. That's awful. True story. But it's my own fault because when I put myself in the public domain and I say things like that, and it's not just diabetes. This is where our country is today. Mm -hmm. And facts, facts don't matter. You can spin the facts any way you want to. For sure. Including diabetes. I'm reading this book right now. And just to make this point a little more clear. There was a group of people when insulin was discovered over 100 years ago that came out screaming that this was going to kill more people. This was a horrible thing to do. You can't let this happen. You can't let children have access to insulin. You're going to kill them. The same thing was seen after antibiotics, vaccines. There's always going to be this group of people that are going to be against the greatest medical discovery maybe in the history of a man and womankind, and yet they didn't have cable news, they didn't have social media. So I don't think that their impact was great, 
but we see this after every discovery. Well, that is quite a story. My goodness. Well, on that note, just kind of moving towards maybe a little bit more optimism. Are there anything like, is there anything going on in the diabetes community right now that you feel especially hopeful about or that you feel like, you know, if people have an opportunity to advocate for? I mean, insulin pricing is just such a huge issue, but it's, you know, got a lot of um, emotion tied to it and maybe some scary stuff as well. But how about things that are maybe hopeful or? Well, yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of things that are hopeful. I mean, we have wonderful technology when I look back over the last almost 60 years. And to me, the big thing, if we're just focusing on type one, is everybody should have access to CGM. Everybody. Now, in the UK, that's now the case. They did a study with, and, and it happened to be with the Freestyle Libre, and they showed dramatic effects with not just A1C, which they did, time and range, what they did, but hypoglycemia, severe hypos, trips to the ER. And they showed it was dramatically, dramatically cost-effective for type 1s to have the Libre. And as a matter of fact, there was no support from Abbott, who makes the Libre. Um, the study has been published. I am not sure if the cost-effectiveness data has been published, but I've heard it presented. Dreamly cost-effective to the point that if you live in the UK and you have type 1 diabetes, since it's a national healthcare coverage, you get it. Not only because it's beneficial and it will provide you safety in the short term, better control in the long term, but because it's actually cost-saving. And um, that's not the way our country works. Mm-hmm. Um, it will never work that way, again, because of the politics. It always gets back to the politics. But I, I'm hopeful that hopeful that we get more um, penetration of CGM in the type 1 space. We were, we're getting better. Um, I, I think where the place where we really need to focus the most on, which we keep talking about, but we haven't really moved the needle, is the entire topic of type 1 diabetes in the community where you don't have a true team, where you don't have a specialist, where you're just dealing with primary care. And we know in the adult type 1 world, it's different in pediatrics, we know that 50% of of adult type 1 patients get their care in primary care. And some of the primary care practices do a great job. And there are a couple I've been associated with over the years. And the reason why they do such a good job often is because there's a family member or a child or somebody very close to that primary care physician type one, or it may be that primary care physician themselves. Mm-hmm. I currently take care of two primary care physicians as patients. And, and it's fascinating what I learned because they can't really do well with type one diabetes in their practices because they don't have the infrastructure to do it. Even though they're both expert, one wears a pump, one wears, one's on uh, multiple injections, but they can't take care of it because there's no infrastructure with nurses and dealing with all the paperwork and nutrition and just to set up a CGM, let alone a pump. They can't do it. They absolutely can't do it. So that's, that to me is, is a real problem from the most hopeful side where I am the most hopeful in full disclosure, I consult with this company 
And it's a company out of Israel that makes a non-invasive glucose monitor that works by radio frequency. And um, there's a lot out there online. My brother, who's a journalist, actually wrote an article about it. And your audience can just Google James Hirsch, which is my brother's name, and G-Wave. G-Wave is the name of the device. The article came out about a year and a half ago, and things are hopefully moving quickly now. Um, There was a, because of the pandemic and chip shortages and everything, there was a little bit of a lull, but they're going to be moving quicker. And I'm hoping um, within the next few months to year, this becomes a much more visible topic for your audience. And you won't have to be Googling some esoteric uh, um, article by my brother that this will be out there. That's really exciting. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a there's a lot of technology and just new therapies that are on the horizon. So that is something to be hopeful for. Yeah, yeah. Well, Earl, I really appreciate you making time to talk with me. And um, I really appreciate everything that you have done for our community over the years. And uh, it sounds like you've had some challenges recently, but I hope that they don't slow you down too much. It sounds like you've got plenty on your plate and we really appreciate you making time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And for the record, I don't look at these as challenges. I just wear them as badges of honor. Yeah, it's a very different, uh, I think, experience. I feel a lot of passion about doing what I do because of my own experience with diabetes and just how important I feel like it is to care for our people, um, just given all the challenges. So I really appreciate that you do that as well. You bet. All right. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Embracing Diabetes with your podcast host, Dr. Liz Stevens, and music by Noah Mortola. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe felt inspired or informed or less alone or all of the above. Please follow Embracing Diabetes on all major podcast platforms and leave a comment, question, or review. Thanks again. We hope you'll come back for more.